Just a brief public service announcement. We are taking a short break from the brief series that I've been preaching through the book of Ruth and plan, Lord willing, to finish that series on April 17 and April 24. Today, we begin a four-part series that Mackenzie and I will be doing together. Uh, should, should the Lord give us the next four Lord's Days, I plan to preach the first of four sermons this morning in Colossians chapter 1. Sermon series is entitled, The Glory of Christ. From here, Mackenzie will take over the next three weeks and preach the remainder of this wonderful chapter of Scripture. For my part today, the plan is to preach the first 14 verses of Colossians 1, to preach the introductory portion of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. So I'm hoping, in one sense, to set the table for what's coming in verses 15 and following. Paul writes the following things in the latter verses of Colossians 1. He writes that he became a minister to make the word of God fully known. He writes that he sought to make known to the saints the mystery of God that had been hidden for ages but had now been revealed in the coming of Christ. He wrote that he sought to make known the glory of the gospel, which is union with Christ. And union with Christ, according to Paul, is the hope of glory. He wrote that it is Christ that he and the apostles proclaim. For our part, as pastors here at Covenant Baptist Church, we strive to pattern our preaching after those very things. We have decided to know nothing among us except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We trust that God will save his people and will continue to confirm our faith and that he will sanctify us as we preach his law and his gospel and as we herald Jesus Christ. John Calvin, writing on 1 John 5.13, acknowledges that remnants of unbelief remain in all of us and that our faith is often weak and is in need of constant and more full confirmation. And then he writes these words, We ought to observe the way in which faith is confirmed by having the office and the power of Christ explained to us. For the apostle says that he wrote these things, that eternal life is to be sought nowhere else but in Christ, in order that they who were believers already might make progress in believing. It is therefore the duty of a godly teacher, in order to confirm disciples in the faith, to extol as much as is possible the grace of Christ, so that being satisfied with that, we may seek nothing else. May it be. May it be here. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to Colossians 1. You might already be ahead of me. You may have already opened them. While you turn to Colossians 1, I want to give a little bit of background information on the letter and even the church in that city. Colossae was a city in southern Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And a church was founded there by 
a man named Epaphras. Likely, this church was founded in the aftermath of Paul's ministry in Ephesus that we read of in Acts chapter 19. The occasion for this letter, Epaphras, a pastor in this church, has visited Paul in prison. You can see that in chapter 4 and verse 12, most pointedly, that Epaphras is with Paul. He presumably has gone to visit Paul to tell Paul how the church is in Colossae, and it seems to discuss some strange teaching that had arisen there. This can be clearly inferred from what Paul wrote to the church. It seems that some were teaching a form of asceticism in the church. By that we mean a lifestyle of radical deprivation as a way of godliness. It seems that others, or maybe the same individuals, were teaching the observance of the ceremonial law as revealed in the Old Testament as a means of placating spiritual forces and as a means of entering into some higher plane of spiritual living. So Paul's purpose for writing this letter, if we're going to get at the heart of the matter, is to make plain the sufficiency of Christ for the salvation of the saints. To help the saints understand that in order to gain acceptance before God, they need only Jesus. To help the saints understand what the Christian life then looks like. And to emphasize that it is only through union with Christ that they live that Christian life. So with all that by way of introduction, let's read the text together, beginning in Colossians 1 and verse 1, reading through the end of verse 14. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. This portion of Paul's letter to the Colossians has three sections, a greeting, thanksgiving for them, and then intercession for them. So those three sections will be the three parts of today's message, greeting, thanksgiving, intercession. 
So part one, the greeting, this will be brief. Put your eyes on verse one. Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul is a messenger of Christ according to the will of God. It was God who had called him to this ministry. He then, on behalf of himself and Timothy, who was traveling with him during this portion of his ministry, greets the saints in Colossae. He greets the saints in particular with grace and peace. Now, that's pretty standard in terms of a greeting from the apostle, but that doesn't mean that we should just gloss over it. On these kinds of greetings from the apostles, Martin Luther observed this. He said that the apostles often greet the saints with grace and peace because we need grace in that we're sinners. And we need peace because our hearts and our consciences are often troubled. He's not wrong about those things. Grace and peace, says Paul, to the saints and the faithful ones in Christ at Colossae. Thus concludes part one of the greeting. We're now going to move our way to part two. We're going to look at verses three to eight, in which Paul gives thanks for the Colossian believers. Paul gives thanks for these saints. Verses three to eight. Put your eyes on verse three. Paul says there, we always thank God when we pray for you. Now that we there, I would understand to be Paul and the others with him. For example, Timothy. Paul always thanks God in prayer, he says, for these brothers and sisters. Verse 4, he has done this ever since he heard of their faith in Christ and of the love that they have for all the saints. In the beginning of verse 5, he indicates that their faith and their love are grounded in the hope that is laid up for them in heaven. Now, don't miss this piece. Paul says, we always thank God when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ, and since we heard of your love for the saints. These emphases come up over and over again in the pages of the New Testament. Faith in Christ, love for the saints. Any conversation about the marks of a Christian any conversation about what characterizes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ must begin with these two things. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not oneself. Trusting Christ, not one's own merit or righteousness. And alongside that, a love for the brothers and sisters. The Christian life is impossible in our own strength, and there are absolutely complex things that we have to navigate if we're going to live well together in a fallen world. Absolutely true. And at the same time, the Christian life is not complicated. We concern ourselves chiefly with these two things. We trust Christ. We love the saints. Moving on into the latter portion of verse 5, Paul says that the Colossian believers have heard of this hope, this hope that is laid up for them in heaven on account of Christ, that is what undergirds their faith and love. They have heard of this hope in the word of the truth, which is the gospel, says Paul. Verse 6, that gospel has come to them and is bearing fruit, as indeed, says Paul, it's going into the whole world and bearing fruit. And so it is still, by the way, 
2,000 years, nearly 2,000 years after these words were penned, that same gospel is going into the same world and bearing that same fruit. God is saving his people. This was meant by the apostle to encourage the saints. And we should be encouraged to think on this too. What God promised long ago, what the prophets wrote, is coming to pass. Because God always does what he says he will do. Paul says to the Colossians, the gospel is bearing fruit in you, and it has done so since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. That's a synopsis of verse 6, removing that middle section. The gospel is bearing fruit in you, and it has done so since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Here's another thing that we cannot miss. The gospel, the understanding of the grace of God in truth, is what bears fruit in the church, in the saints. Say that again. It is the gospel that bears fruit. It is the understanding of the grace of God in truth that bears fruit. Fruit only comes as a result of life. And only the gospel can give life. Only via union with Christ, being vitally united to Christ by faith, do we have life in order to produce fruit. It is the preaching of the grace of God in Christ and the saints grasping that that causes fruit to be born. Now, I use those words in a particular way for a reason. The law of God can and does guide us in our living. Amen. But the law cannot itself cause fruit to be born. The law itself cannot give life. Only Christ gives life. Only being united to Christ is what causes the saints to bear fruit. This is why the apostle writes this way. The gospel has come to you and it's bearing fruit and it does so since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Verse 7, of this good news, of this grace of God in truth, Paul is now going to mention Epaphras, who has been a good gift of Christ to this church. He has served as a faithful minister, or as Paul calls him here, a beloved fellow servant. He has proclaimed the Lord Jesus. He has taught these dear saints the gospel. They learned it from him. And now he brings news to Paul of the love of these saints in the Spirit. This is a very sweet picture. The Lord is good to us. He uses broken vessels to proclaim and teach his gospel, to herald his Christ. We contain within us treasures in these jars made of clay. The Lord draws some very straight lines with very crooked sticks. He mutually then encourages us through the relationships that we have with each other. 
And he even encourages saints in other places as ministers and messengers travel, as word spreads of the work of Christ in other locales. We're encouraged by these things today. We're encouraged in one another today. It was no different in this context. There is a camaraderie that exists even amongst sister congregations who partake in the same grace of God in Christ and who preach and treasure the same gospel. May the Lord encourage our hearts as we think along these things today. We're going to now move to part three, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. These are the verses in which Paul begins to intercede for the Colossian believers, beginning in verse 9 through verse 14. Paul intercedes for them. He prays things for them. He's going to tell us the content of these prayers. So we're going to look at this. We're going to assess it. We're going to reflect and apply these things together. In verses 9 and 10, Paul says that from the day he and others with him heard of the Colossians' faith in Christ and love for the saints, grounded in the hope of heaven, they have not ceased to pray for them. And then he's going to tell them, here are some of the things that I've prayed for you, that we have prayed for you. He says that he has prayed that the Colossian saints would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I'm just going to go ahead and say this right now. This is not up for debate. The will of God is revealed in the word of God, period. The will of God is revealed in the word of God. True wisdom, then, is to know and understand what God has revealed. And that kind of wisdom and that kind of understanding only comes from one source, none other than the Spirit of God himself. Hence the reason that Paul prays for spiritual wisdom. It's just like what he wrote to the church in Corinth. Consider these words. Now, says Paul to the church in Corinth, we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The will of God is revealed in the word of God. True wisdom is to understand what God has revealed. And that wisdom comes only from the Spirit. And Paul prays that these saints would have that. Paul and others with him pray that the Colossians would have this knowledge, this spiritual wisdom, this understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So this knowledge, this wisdom, this understanding results in some things. It results in these believers walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, most in the room are familiar with this. The word walk, as it is written here, is a figure of speech referring to how we live. To walk in a certain way is to live in a certain way. Now, when Paul says that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, let's just think about that for a moment. 
He's not saying that the Colossians would live in a way that makes them worthy of salvation. Not possible. He's not saying that they would become the kind of people that God would have been happy to save in the first place. Also not possible. Rather, what Paul is praying is that they would live in a way that is commensurate with the gospel. They would live in such a way that they are living in light of the truth of Christ, that they are living underneath the truth of Christ crucified for them, that they are living in union with the Lord Jesus. In light of Christ and what he's done, in light of God's grace and this great salvation that God has given, because of Christ, brothers and sisters, there is a way in which we are to live together. And this way of living, this is important, this way of living entails that we regulate our lives according to the will of God as revealed in his word, rather than living based upon our own instincts and intuitions. Paul says, I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul's desire is that these saints would walk not only in a manner worthy of the Lord in a general sense, but also that they would walk in a manner that is fully pleasing to God. Well, what would that look like? This is where we interpret scripture with scripture. Remember the words of Paul in the letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He uses very similar language there. He says that he prays, he desires that the Ephesian Christians would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. And then he goes on to talk about what that looks like. How does he begin? He begins with these things. Writing to the church in Ephesus, he says he desires that they would live this way, that they would live a life characterized by humility, by gentleness, by patience, bearing with one another in love, and by being eager to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul prays for these Colossian Christians that they would be filled with this knowledge and understanding of the will of God so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Those good works would be the ones God has outlined in his word. There are all kinds of things that men talk about that are pleasing to God. We want to rightly define what good works are. He prescribes them in his word. Those we pursue. By the Spirit, we pursue them. They begin with how we live with one another in the community of the church and how we love our neighbor. These good works, we are told, have been prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And they are the work of the Spirit of Christ in us. Finally, Paul prays that these Christians, he begins by saying, be filled with the knowledge of God's will so as to walk in a manner worthy of God, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and then increasing in the knowledge of God. How? According to what? According to the word of the truth, which is the gospel, verse 5. 
and according to the law of God that is upright and true. In verse 11, Paul goes on in his intercession. He prays that the Colossian saints would be strengthened with all power according to the glorious might of God himself for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, what a prayer that is. We would do well to pray that for one another every day. I pray that you would be strengthened with all power according to the glorious might of God himself for all endurance and patience with joy. So here's the deal. While we are in this world, ours is the way of the cross. We are not strong in and of ourselves. We're weak. We are not sufficient. We're insufficient. We're not always riding high in our experience. Far from it. Hundreds, if not thousands of temptations present themselves daily to us. And spiritual dangers are quite literally all around. And so we are often, in our lives, in our experience, we are often weighed down. We see nothing of what God has promised. And we see no earthly good in so much of what we face. So clearly, it is only by God's power that we will endure. It is only by God's power that we will be able to bear up under the sufferings of this life and keep the faith. This is why Paul prays what he prays. God keeps us. God sustains us. On top of that, God in his great power enables us to have joy as we endure. Only the grace and power of God, beloved, could ever do such a thing. Grace. It's supernatural that we would endure in the faith and that there would ever be joy because our experience in this world we live in and our enemy, the accuser, preach a very different word than God's word. Thanks be to God for his grace, not just to bring us to Christ initially, but to keep us unto salvation. Paul goes on. We're going to look at the last three verses together. Verse 11, right? May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Then these words, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now those words will preach themselves. In one sense, we could close in prayer. But we'll do a little bit of looking at these together. So Paul is saying, I'm praying for you that you would endure with joy all the while giving thanks to the Father for Jesus Christ, through whom he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Again, that's a prayer. It's good to pray the words of the scriptures. Just to go and say that. We've thought about that a lot lately with the Psalms. It's good to pray these things. 
Paul's word to these Colossian Christians is that by God's free grace, they, and when you hear that, we, right, have been adopted into the family of God. We are sealed with the spirit, the spirit of adoption, by whom we call God Father. And then Paul adds these two little words in light there at the end of the sentence to signify the contrast with the kingdom of this world under the rule of Satan, i.e. the domain of darkness, right? We've been delivered from that. We've been adopted into the family of God. We've been given a new name. We now have an inheritance when we didn't before. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of Jesus, his beloved son, in whom we have redemption. We are those who by grace, apart from any merit, by faith, apart from any work that we have ever done or will do, have passed from death to life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the course of the world. We were following the prince of the power of the air. We were enslaved to our corruptions and our cravings and our passions. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then God did a thing. And being rich in mercy because that's who he is and being great in love because that's who he is. He made us alive together with Christ. And we are now members of the kingdom of God's beloved son. So think in these terms. Because this is the ground of our peace and our hope and our comfort. Jesus, the beloved son, is beloved of the father. Jesus is pleasing in every way to the father. Jesus is altogether lovely. And here's the thing. Having been united to him, wonder of wonders, we are now all of those things to the Father in him. In him we have redemption, says Paul. In Christ we find the entirety of our salvation, every part of it, from the beginning to the end which is only appropriate given that Jesus, God the Son incarnate, is literally the beginning and end of all things. He's the beginning and end of creation. For goodness sakes, he's the beginning and end of our salvation. Paul places the terms redemption and forgiveness of sins next to one another there at the end of verse 14, which is also appropriate because at the heart of our redemption is this reality, that in Christ, our sins are not counted to us, but rather they are forgiven and covered. Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, whose transgression is covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Blessed are all who take refuge in the Son. In Christ, God no longer deals with us according to our sins. That, for sinners, is so hard to wrap our minds and hearts around because we always tend to deal with one another according to our sins. We do. We tend to think that God is altogether like us. 
Surely he will deal with me according to my iniquity. No, he says. It's because our substitute, our representative, has already taken care of that. Jesus was dealt with by the Father according to our iniquity, so that we would not have to be. Praise be to his name. Amen? He took our sin and died for it. He lived to fulfill all righteousness and has given us that too. So track with me for a minute. This is where we're going to go for just the final portion of our time. Again, trying to think about the point of Colossians wholesale, the message of Colossians 1, teeing it up for my brother for the next three weeks. What are we going to be thinking about? Paul has already, even in these verses we've looked at today, he's already pointed these Christians to Christ in the gospel. Now, where is he about to go, beginning in verse 15? He is about to write some of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible about the preeminence of Christ in all things. He is about to write beautifully of the sufficiency of Christ to accomplish redemption. In verse 11 of our text today, Paul begins to pray for the strengthening of the saints so that they might endure with joy. And then here, verses 12 to 14, Paul again goes straight to Jesus and what he has accomplished for the saints in accord with the plan of God the Father. So my take, let's go kind of lay my cards out on the table. My take on what Paul is doing here and what Paul is doing in the entire letter is this. He is giving the Colossian saints the only thing that could protect and defend them from the false teaching and the aberrant practice that had crept into the church. Say it again. He's giving these Christians the only thing that could protect them from the false teaching and the aberrant practice that had crept into the church. What is that? It is a clear vision of the person and work of Jesus Christ, period. Now, I'm comforted by the fact that that's John Calvin's take on this too. It's good to know that you're not the first person to say such a thing. These saints, in the mind of the apostle, inspired of the Spirit, more than anything, needed to understand accurately who and what Christ was for them. We need it too. So at the heart of it, again, think with me. At the heart of it, how is it that we are carried about by strange teaching and strange practice in the church? How is it that we are blown about by every wind of doctrine? I would suggest it is because the preeminence and the sufficiency and the grace of Christ are not in view as they should be. That these things, the preeminence, the sufficiency, and the grace of Christ are not perceived by us as they should be. Now you realize that the project of Satan in the church is to obscure Christ from view. You understand that? Hear Calvin again. Very helpful here. He says, quote, There is nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to bring on mists with the view of obscuring Christ because he knows that by this means the way is opened up for every kind of falsehood. He's right about that. If Satan can obscure Christ from view, it opens the door to any 
kind of false teaching and false practice. Now, this kind of thing, this obscuring of Christ, mists, as Calvin says, that would obscure him from our view, they can arise in any number of ways. Church history bears this out. The letters in the New Testament bear this out. That typically, that obscuring of Christ is not accomplished through an out-and-out denial of Christ. It's more subtle than that, usually. It can happen by adding things alongside Christ for righteousness, right? For righteousness and eternal life, we add things to Christ. Jesus plus our transformation, excuse me, start over. Jesus plus our transformation of life. Jesus plus our obedience. Jesus plus works of the law. Jesus plus our disciplines. Jesus plus our affections. Now, all of those things that I just said, here's the rub. All of that, transformation of life, obedience, good works, disciplines, affections, are all good things. That's what makes it sell. That's what gives it traction. Or, Christ is obscured by making other things also good, the focus of our minds and hearts and energies. These could be any number of things. Could be the stuff I've already listed. Might be a sense of purpose. I want to live a purpose-driven life. Might be mental and emotional well-being. We live in a therapeutic age. Might be having a solid marriage and a strong family. Might be financial stewardship. Ministries like that, they are very, very large for a reason. They serve good purposes, but they're not the main thing. You pick your thing. The point is this. As good as all of those things are, sense of purpose, mental and emotional well-being, marriage, family, financial stewardship, whatever, as good as all of those things are, none of them are the reason Jesus came. It sounds very controversial to say that Jesus did not come so that we would have better marriages. He did not come so that we would better steward our resources. Now, fruit of sanctification, you better believe it's going to bless your marriage. And you're going to steward things better. Amen. And Christ came to save sinners, of whom we are the foremost. He came to die under the law, to pay the penalty that we deserve, and he came to fulfill all righteousness because we don't have that. And he came to accomplish it for us. All of this sometimes is reinforced by preaching, this obscuring of Christ. It's enforced, reinforced by preaching that is less than good. Some preaching is simply therapeutic, self-help kind of stuff, right? It's motivational speaking in Jesus' name. I trust most in this room can identify that and would out of hand say, yeah, that's just not helpful. It's fluff. It's true. But there is also preaching that is thoroughly rooted in the biblical text. But what we're taught to do is to go to the text and glean a lot of good from it, background, historical, original context, moral and practical application. And then, having done that, we're going to insert Jesus somewhere. We're going to slip Christ in somewhere. But we're not taught 
to read literally every passage of Scripture through the lens of Christ and his redemptive work in the place of the sinner. I am saying, we are saying, that is how we should read every page of this book, through the lens of Christ and his work in our place. Some, with the best of intentions, actually caution against preaching that way. So, beloved, let me ask you this question. What is it that we need? Particularly when we gather like this, what do we need? We need the glory and the grace and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ heralded to us as much as is possible. That's what Paul is doing in Colossians. Here again, quoted him a lot today and it's okay. Here again, Calvin, quote, this is the only means of retaining as well as restoring pure doctrine. He's going to say it. To place Christ before the view such as he is with all of his blessings, that his excellence may be truly perceived. Close quote. We preach Christ. One may rightly ask, brother, what about the law? I'm glad you asked. We preach the law too. We preach the law and the gospel. We preach the law first and foremost to show us our sin and drive us to Christ in faith. And then we preach the law as the perfect guide for our living in Christ. You want to know what righteousness looks like? The law will tell you. You want to know what wickedness is? The law will tell you. You want to know what will go well for you, what will produce good in your life? Look to the law. You want to know what will ruin your life? Look to the law. And we preach Christ as the atonement for our sins and as our whole and only righteousness before God. Whole meaning all of it. Only meaning there is no other. It's not like we have his righteousness and then we need to add ours. His is it in terms of our standing before God received by faith. Will there be fruit in the lives of the saints? Yes, there will. Will there be good works? Yes, there will. Will there be repentance? Yes, there will. Will there be obedience? Yes, there will. Will there be a desire to obey? Yes, there will. By God's grace, all of those things are there. And all of those things are an outflow of our union with Jesus Christ. And none of those things are our righteousness. Only Christ is our righteousness. Consider him, the Lord Jesus. He is God the Son. He has existed eternally. He never got started. There was never a time when he was not. Through him and for him, all things were made. And that one, that person, took on human flesh. Truly God and truly a human being. In him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He, that one, 
walked this earth and breathed this air as a human being. He lived. He kept every word of God's law every single moment of his life. And for people who have never done that for five minutes, that is staggering to think about. And then at the end of his earthly life, he took our sins and our corruption upon himself and he was mocked for it, derided for it, crushed for it, died on a cross for it. And by faith, we are now united to him. By faith, he is our representative. We have taken refuge in him. His death is counted as our death. All of his righteousness and obedience are counted as our righteousness and obedience. Question. The most important moment of our time together this morning. Question for you and me. Is what he did enough? Is what he did enough? Is it enough to give us peace with God now and when we stand before the throne at the end of history? Is it enough? Is what he did enough so that the Father might look upon us in him and be pleased now and in the future? Is it enough? And all God's people say yes, because we know that he's the only hope we have. We don't just sing, all I have is Christ. That's the confession of our entire life. He is the only hope for sinners. View him prostrate in the garden. On the ground, your maker lies. On the bloody tree, behold him. Sinner, will this not suffice? Yes, it will suffice because Christ is enough. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just peace now. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He has become our high priest by the power of his indestructible life. And he holds that priesthood forever because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ, saints, is enough for forgiveness, for righteousness, for sanctification, for eternal life. May we never look to anyone or anything else. Let's pray.